You're listening to a Hindustan Times podcast brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan, National Books Editor Hindustan Times, and this is the Books and Authors podcast. It's a weekly podcast where I speak to authors who've got a new book out. Hi, so today we have with us Surinder S. Jodhka, who's the author of The Indian Village: Rural Lives in the 21st Century. Hello and thank you for coming on the show. Hello, thank you for having me. Okay. So you know what I found really interesting about the book is that there's so many things that we take as givens, you know, uh you know about about villages and cities and what they mean and you know especially about uh the rural urban divide and you know our we have I mean as city folk often you know we have a very I realize after reading your book a condescending attitude you know that's the best way i guess to you know describe it in a, in lay terms to to the to to rural life and to villages which um well which i mean you know it's no longer uh, valid i guess in the in the current in contemporary times so i liked how you brought you know you brought that out really well so do you want to start with telling us about you i mean you've written various books on caste on uh, on rural india so this book why this you know why have you written it and you know what is the idea yeah, thank you manjula and thank you for having read the book and i'm very happy that the message has gone across and that was precisely the point i am an academics so i mostly write for peer and that is written very differently where yes. you know people yes. who are working in the field they yeah. read your work they have to add something new to what is already known to people yes. so this book is not written for peers this is kind of for popular consumption not that the assumptions that you are talking are not shared by people in social sciences or in academia mm. but they would talk about it a little differently and within yes. social sciences also as i have argued in my paper also in my book also these notions have evolved in some sense the way social sciences have thought about the world mm. so i think uh, the idea also was to communicate with the urban reader and mm. at some level uh, i was always having the context of farmers movement in mind yes. uh, in 2000 farmers were sitting here and they were talking so intelligently and yes. our media channels middle class people in urban areas were talking about them which sounded just stupid right it seemed like they they did not understand the world they did not understand uh, how these laws are framed and where are they coming from there is politics behind politics yes. so that is something which kind of seemed very obvious to any educated person mm. and people are, are claiming to be educated are not really even kind of critical for a moment while farmers yes. were raising questions and they were providing possible explanations and they were not talking only about their village and their field they were talking about the world and yes. they were connected with the world so i think uh, there was a requirement of a book like this i think there is a requirement of a book like this where people need to read because all of us are mobile all the time yes and at some level uh, we were never static i mean rural lives as i have also put in my chapter historical chapter if you actually look at the history of act- actually existing rurals they have always been in some sense fluid uh, spatial locations like cities have been i mean mm. the city that we are talking about in in delhi uh, it has history of you know many many centuries and his delhi of 17th century was very different from delhi of uh, 19th century yes and delhi of 20th century was different from delhi of 21st century last uh, 10 years 20 years delhi has changed so much yes so everything is changing. everything is in some sense so the spatial equations are also changing mm-hmm. uh, spatial uh, balances are also changing i mean delhi is not a not a single city mm-hmm. perhaps different kinds of uh, special experiences that you would have living in delhi i mean if you are living on a campus like jnu it's a very different place neighboring bunirka is a very different place yes wise workar is an elite place uh, living there is again a very different kind of experience i mean you go to condos in in, in gurgaon or, or or noida that's again a very different kind of you know social reality so yes. the point is that there is this superimposed uh, uh, classification which in some sense also gives the urban middle class a sense of superiority over over rest of the world 
that we yes. already arrived, these people are left behind and we know what is good for them. So I yes. think that kind of conversation needs to begin so that we can speak to each other. Not that the differences don't exist, but there are many kinds of differences and people, wherever they are living, they have their own sense of the world. Yes, yes. And you know what I found particularly interesting, you know, I, was you saying that um, even the idea of the Indian village is static and timeless and, you know, uh, traditional and all those things was a created one created by the by the by the british uh, you know yeah. a, as part of the whole co- colonial endeavor so uh, that that's something we have not you know i mean we just accept these things without thinking of um, all the the machinery behind these thoughts so let's talk about that you know that's like fascinating yeah, so I mean, this is something which kind of the social sciences has been uh, known for some time. Historians have been writing on this, and sometime in the middle of twentieth century, uh, historians begin to write on this that the kind of notions that initially even uh, say people like Karl Marx proclaimed yes. about Indian village as a static place. So this was actually constructed by the British colonial rulers, and, and there's a kind of Chicago anthropologist Bernard Cohn who wrote extensively on this and following him, many other historians have written, those who have looked at the histories of different regions, mm. the historians who looked at, for example, medieval South India, and they came up with very different kind of uh, uh, picture of, of, of living reality in, in South India. Likewise, other regions of, 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 of the subcontinent also had their own specific histories. Uh, likewise, there was this literature by, by Marxist historian, people like Irfan Habib, who questioned mm. the Marxian notion itself that, you know, land was not communally owned. Villages yes. were not static places. Uh, yes. Where was the where was the wealth coming from? If India was a rich place in the 15th, 16th century where the British has come, Europeans come, the whole world wants to come here. Mm. What was the source of those, those riches? Those riches yes. were not produced in industrial economy. I mean, even diamond trade begins much later. So yes. riches were coming from agriculture, right? You know, all the urban areas were in some sense centers for the elite to, to live off the incomes that was generated in rural areas. So mm. India had had trade of food grains. We talk about spices. Spices, agricultural products. I mean, yes. India was exporting spices to the world and world was coming here to, to buy spices. Whatever you think of, all the Indian riches came from land surplus, you know, surplus that was produced on agricultural land through agriculture by cultivating peasant or whatever you like to call them. Mm. So all the gold that we talk about in, in, in temples of South India, you have huge volume of gold lying there. So this was the rulers who were, who were collecting uh, land revenue and that revenue was then converted into some kind of fixed wealth. And that was obviously temple was part of the, of the ruling regime. So mm. all the riches actually came from agriculture. So agriculture could produce those riches because it was a prosperous, dynamic agriculture. So you mm. had all kinds of crops. That's why we have so much population here. You know, population yes. could live here and survive here. So I think uh, history of agriculture still needs to be perhaps written much more about. And if the British had not come here, West would not have been developed as it is. And we would yes. not have been as poor as we are. Yes. So all the the wealth that, that that the Britishers were able to kind of siphon off, it was it was it was taken away from the cultivating peasants, right? It was in the mm-hmm. form of land revenues. The first yes. thing British do is to change land revenue systems, right? Cotton yeah. was taken away from here, railways were set up for all these things. So actually they made India a backward place. India yes. was actually also ruralized during the colonial period. So yes. actual history was very different. But they tried to also produce a narrative of Indian rural realities for their own people. So by the 19th, 18th, 17th century, you also have changes taking place in Europe. 18th, 19th century, particularly when you have democratic movements, which are which are beginning in Europe, they need mm. to justify their presence in India. Yes. So the British then produce an imagination of India, which in some sense would justify their presence here. Yes. What was also as, as white man's burden, you know, yes. the famous poem yes. by Kipling. Kipling. So the point was that they were, yeah, yeah. Instead of being apologetic about plundering this region, they were producing justifications which would sell very well, even with somebody like Karl Marx. Yes. Karl Marx also, thought, you know, Britishers were doing great job by 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 destroying the Hindu equilibrium, you know. But that was all nonsense. 
agriculture was was a very dynamic uh, activity here uh, we didn't have the kind of famines we had during the british period yes it was because it was reworked in a manner that all the surplus was taken away and once you kind of depressed somebody then productivity also declines because those crops were changed you know you be forced to produce cash crops because the nature of land revenue system was such so the point is that this was a kind of construct or a narrative as 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 people in literature would talk about a way of telling the story which would justify their presence here and would try to make it appear that they actually were doing good to india and mm. this is a narrative which all of us inherit all english speaking indian middle class elite which in some sense replaced them yes. we also feel very happy about it so that's why it has survived mm. many of those narratives were also in some sense uh, accepted by the nationalist leadership as facts and truths about india mm. uh, so when gandhi is talking about village he's not talking about india he has his own imagination which he has developed living in south africa partly reading european utopian thinkers mm. and when he actually goes to the villages in india as i have written in one of the chapter he is very disappointed he said you know, this is this is not the village that ought to be there it's so dirty <laughs> because he has never lived in a village so nobody talks about it we celebrate gandhi all the time and simplicity and stuff like that but actually village was always divided on caste line and caste was not simply a functional uh, system where people did different kinds of jobs it produced misery it produced inequalities yes. it produced you know other kinds of violence so yes. all that gandhi is actually shocked to see when he goes to the villages that's why he begins to talk very differently and then he also finds it useful because most of these 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 middle class leaders are themselves very urban folks they don't have any idea about the real india as he would want to call it everything was real i don't think that village has to be real and urban is unreal so yeah. that's another point that that i try to make so i think uh, that that narrative in some sense becomes part of our common sense mm. uh, and then becomes part of our textbooks it becomes part of our imagination of ourselves our futures and pasts right mm-hmm. we begin to see mobilities in a particular manner and those who are not mobile like middle class urban indians we see them as 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 people left behind mm-hmm. rather than respecting their choices or rather than looking at the actual reasons why some people are mobile other not not mobile structural reasons we tend to find these easy explanations so it's very convenient to mm-hmm. live in those stereotypes and that's why i think this book is trying to make that point that we need to critically engage with our own common sense and understanding of the the pasts and presents of and as well as our imagination of the future mm. and also it's part of the decolonization of our own minds right to like do precisely yeah confront yeah. these ideas yes yes right? yes so let's talk about this fam- the 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 recurrence of famine during the colonial period you know and since i mean independence we haven't had those which is like which is one of the main uh, things that you can say about not being colon not being a colony about independence right we don't suffer from those things so let's talk about that you know and, and it was a very uh, frequent occurrence during the colonial period the great suffering was caused by it right so so yeah i mean it's uh, very interesting that even during the pre british colonial period even though we have you know different kinds of ruler ruling over the region uh, not that there were no fluctuations of weather or there were no droughts and and floods all that was happening always right mm-hmm. uh, but the, the the world had a kind of uh, again we can't call it just because there were many other things that were there but the mm-hmm. point is that even the pre colonial period there was a kind of organic link between local people and the rulers yes. and when the rulers came here they settled down you know when the mughals come to rule this region they are not foreigners any longer they yeah. are they are they are local people they learn local languages they marry locally most importantly their economies are local right? mm-hmm. so whatever they they earn as as land revenue uh, that is invested locally whether it is you know building a taj mahal or a fort or buying jewelry so when mm-hmm. they buy jewelry it produces employment for local artisans it's yes. a local artisan economy that grows in urban areas uh likewise when you have uh, construction of uh, of palaces and forts it obviously is a local economy not that it is not integrated in the larger global economy of that time or whatever it was but it mm. was not really squeezing the local economy yes so there was a qualitative difference between the britishers when they come here 
And it was Dada Bhai Noroji who I think best conceptualized it. That there was a process of economic drain. Yes. So they charged us, they charged the, the Indian region, uh, uh, the colonial government, the colonial government of Britain, uh, the, the 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 salaries for those people who came to to rule over India, right? So that was in some sense charged from the land revenue that was collected here. That's how wealth was squeezed out of India, mm-hmm. even when they were talking about balance of payment. So yes. it was, so one is that they impose different kind of land revenue system where cultivating farmer uh, uh, pheasants are forced to move their crops from cash crops, like, you know, whatever they used to eat at that time, barley or wheat or paddy, to production of things like cotton, because there was industrial revolution there. Yes. They wanted cotton. Right. Yes. So when you produce, move to cash crops, that means you have to buy uh, your 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 rice from the market or yeah. your wheat from the market. So uh, that created a different kind of situation. And farmers or cultivators, cultivated peasants were already getting indebted because they were forced to pay their land revenue in cash rather than share of whatever they produced. So they changed the land revenue systems. In the process, cultivating peasant lost his crop in the sense that he was no longer producing uh, 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 cereals, was producing cash crops. But at the same time, he was also poorer. Right? There's a lot of literature which talks about land alienation. And there were different kind of inequalities that were emerging. When Amartya Sen is talking about famines, he says how there was there were food grains lying in, in Calcutta, but they were they were stored in, in, in big stores. So these inequalities also increased and those inequalities also had implications for uh, uh, what one should say, uh, food security, mm. right? There was no state. I mean, the pre-colonial state was sensitive to the needs of local people because they knew if they had the peasant to cultivate land, only then they had land revenue, right? Yes. So they gave them what were called as the takavi loans if there was a famine. But the colonial regime was completely indifferent to the local people, right? Mm. They were only worried about regions like Punjab from where they recruited army, for their for their own wars, so mm. they in Punjab they brought uh, this new act, Land Alienation Act, was introduced in 1900, which in some sense made the transfer of land from agricultural caste to non-agricultural castes uh, uh, illegal. So mm. otherwise, most of the country they didn't do anything. I mean, they had some notion of rural development. They talked about what we call as community development and stuff like that and cooperatives, but they didn't do much, right? So that's what happens after independence. Two things happen. One is that the colonial squeeze stops, right? Mm-hmm. India is no longer paying for the colonial bureaucracy. So that yes. connection is broken. So whatever yeah. surplus is produced, that is available locally, right? Mm-hmm. The second more important thing that, that happens is democracy, right? Yes. So democracy has to, at some level, deliver in some way or the other, right? You You have elections, you have... We have representations at various levels. We don't yes. realize the value of it. You know, the, the, the local MLAs or even even the local uh, some uh, panchayats and, and representatives, they know their, their location. Political parties are active. They have their, whichever ideology they belong to, but there is some connect with the ruling establishment. You know, bureaucracy is then repackaged as developmental bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. A developmental bureaucracy of the Nehruvian period had that sense of guilt that we need to develop this country. We need to take care of poverty. The very yes. idea of poverty globally becomes very popular in 1970s. And that then becomes a kind of uh, uh, most critical responsibility of any state globally, that mm. your people should not die of hunger. So the yes. food production was there. Even if there was no green revolution, agriculture would have still been able to, to supply food to the Indian population. It was now lots of people are saying that, you know, the kind of, aggressive technology that came with green revolution was perhaps not even required we would have still been able to manage and we would have had better food so that's a separate debate one doesn't want to go into that but otherwise also because there was a developmental state and this developmental state needed some kind of legitimacy through elections electoral process it needed to deliver and it needed to mobilize resources that's how you have uh, you have a public distribution system being institutionalized you have mm. a procurement system, agricultural markets being set up, yes. uh, uh, secure price. So Indian state has enough, enough, enough food grains now to feed wherever there is a drought. So we have not had, because state has developed uh, institutions which would take care of 
of severe hunger. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So you begin the book with this conversation with this uh, uh, former bureaucrat at um, IIC, and you know him being very uh, uh, nostalgic about about village India. So let's talk about that, and then you go on, uh, you know, to uh, pick that apart and to you know to show that basically it's. When you're from a, a privileged sort of background, you would feel that nostalgia. So let's talk about that, and that itself is an uh, is an indicator of the great change that's come about in the village, right? In terms of power equations and everything, social structure. So let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean that is it, as as you would have kind of figured out. It's a layered kind of discussion. Yes, it's talking at, at various level. You know, at some yes. level, that bureaucrat is not ignorant. The bureaucrat no, no, also has, has concern for the village. Yes, uh, the bureaucrat also kind of uh, feels uh, unhappy about the affairs that 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 the way kind of village is being marginalized. So he's saying many things at some level. Yes. Right? so it's a yes. kind of conversation, yeah. and that complexity exists in all of us. Yes. So the fact that we are talking about this book shows the fact that I have written and you are talking to me is that not that we are indifferent to to the larger realities of the village. So yes. that's again again very important point about 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 democracy. So I'm not I'm not attacking the middle class as being indifferent. No, no. Itself. <laughs> no. Uh, so some people do that. I think that also needs to be done. And it's just that mm-hmm. we need to kind of have this conversation and many more conversations where we need to see realities as they are. Uh, as you said that you know this is a kind of from privileged position you can have nostalgia. Actual rural is is very complicated and very difficult. I mean it's not like you don't have problems there. But yes. urban is also very complicated and very difficult. You have, yes. you have many problems in the, in the urban also. So the yes. point is that you know, the, just to open up those complexities, I mean, I kind of developed this narrative. So mm. I thought, you know, this is the way that, you know, we are living in Delhi, sitting in Delhi, and Delhi also has come to now signify being capital city of India and, you know, cultural yes. center also, places like IIC, where these yes. things get talked about all the time. Yes. I think uh, that's a kind of, I thought this was the way to also identify my audience. This book is not written for, for cultivating farmers. This book <laughs> is only written for urban middle-class people like you and me. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, and you also discuss uh, uh, the three ideas to uh, the village, you know, Gandhis and Nehru's and Ambedkar's and, you know, how different each of them is from the other. Yeah. And so yeah. let's... let's uh, you know, and Ambedkar famously, you know, thought it was like a cesspit, right? So let's talk about that and how has it changed or has it not, you know, in many ways, you know? Yeah, so uh, as I was telling earlier, there was a kind of colonial narrative of the village. Yes. Uh, and colonial narrative in some sense was inherited and accepted by the nationalist leadership. Yes. So if you look at Gandhi, Nehru, Ambedkar, none of them was a cultivating peasant. None of them lived in a village. Yes. None of them was actually born in a village. And all of them have at some level accepted the larger colonial narrative of India being a land of villages. Yes. Right? So these are all narratives which are at some level imagined narratives mm-hmm. right, of the village. Right? Even Ambedkar's narrative, even though he's talking about caste, yeah. he has the closest to the, to the reality, ground realities. But yes. he's also talking about, see, if you read Ambedkar has a small booklet called Waiting for Visa. Mm. These are his autobiographical essays. Yeah. And in the in the preface or introduction to that short book, he says that I'm reading, I'm writing this for that foreigner who has no idea about Indian village, the way life is lived in the village mm. and how caste is so so significant in the village and how it kind of makes the untouchables completely dehumanized and marginalized. But actually, if you read his essays, he's not talking about villages. Mm -hmm. He's talking about urban life. He's talking about his own experience at the railway station. Yes. Railway station is not an institution. Mm -hmm. He's talking about another essay about going to a fort in a city where lots of people chase them. He's talking about an office, right? And his own experience of going and meeting his father, who is a railway officer, right? So all these are actually experiences of the of the city. Mm-hmm. It's not like Ambedkar is is or his experience of of the most important essay actually is about his coming back to work for the Maharaja of Baroda who had who had sponsored his education. 
Yes. And then his 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 encounters so much of prejudice uh, yes. in in the, that he's not able to get a house in Baroda. Yes. Right. Yes. That is the essay. So he's not talking about the village at all. Assumption is that you know caste exists in the village, and once you go to the city, caste will go away. While he's actually talking about caste in the city, right? Yeah, so yeah, these yeah. Are, these, are, these are these are contexts. I think where village begins to signify something which is at some level bad and backward, mm. and at some level all of them inherit that. And that okay. narrative is coming from the colonial period. I mean, Nehru is using a class language with landlords and peasants mm. and poor peasants and stupid peasants, and you know those kinds of issues come up. For Gandhi, mm. again, initially it's a very romantic place. Uh, but at the same time, he goes there. It's a dirty place. You know, they need to learn this. They practice untouchability, which is bad. Yeah. And I need to reform them, right? So it's our yeah. responsibility. We should reform them. But all of them are not thinking of their cities as being India. All of them are born in India. Uh, Gandhi's uh, Gandhi's birthplace, Porbandar, has been an urban center forever. I mean, Porbandar yeah. is a place where apparently Sudama comes from. Biology yes. takes it Krishna time. Yes. And then his family has always been urban. Yeah. Likewise, Nehru, Nehru was was born in Allahabad, but his family came from Srinagar to Delhi to Allahabad. No village connection. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. but these are these are not referred to as as pre-colonial India or 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 even colonial India, and that is the space where everything is happening. So, at some level, I'm also kind of working in a different project, uh, which uh, reimagines methodologically. The idea of India, that mm. we tend to have this rural urban and village as being authentic and urban being kind of, in some sense, uh, a developed form of India or a colonial kind of, you know, modern India, which is not really what India used to be. Mm. And anthropologists, sociologists, when they studied India, or even now when journalists want to verify something and say that this is this is really authentic because I've done field work, I went to three villages. Right? <laughs> so that notion itself is very problematic because if you look at rural lives in different parts of the subcontinent, those mm. rural lives evolved historically in their regional contexts and the centers of those regions were invariably cities of various kinds. You know, Every region had cities and I think the city elite or city processes were in some sense more critical than what was happening in the villages which shape rural lives. Right? Okay. Uh, yeah. Because kind of, you know, say, if you go to any any region of India, I mean, if you mm. go to South India, you would find at least 25 prominent urban centers which have existed uh, at least for a thousand years, if not more. Right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, Delhi, Delhi itself is, is 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 a much older place than, than you can think of. Or if you go northward to, from Delhi, uh, you know, whether it is Lahore or, or Jalandhar or Ludhiana or Patiala or Amritsar, Amritsar was still founded in, 90, in the 16th century. But when, when the Sikh gurus talked about Amritsar, they did not think of Amritsar as a village. They said, mm-hmm. Guru share Vasaya, right? Mm-hmm. Or you go to Peshawar or even, you know, Solan or, you know, Lakhnau, Kanpur, Jaipur, right? Yeah. So we also had different categories of urban center. There were pures, there were guards, there were paths, so different yes. kinds of urban centers. So there was a kind of very, very uh, uh, central to the idea of India was urban imagination. Mm-hmm. So literature in, you know, you have you have lots of literature and literature is generally written by the elite. I mean, people who, who live off, I mean, if you're a cultivating farmer, you might compose some kind of folk literature. But mm-hmm. when it comes to writing, you know, somebody like uh, uh, Buddha. Yes. Buddha was not a rural folk, right? Buddha yeah. was, you know, anyone you think of, you know, there is there is kind of urban connection and you know even somebody like Ravi Das and Kabir they are born in Banaras so they're talking about Banaras that's, right Banaras was what a village right yeah, so uh, so one should or or say for example Taj Mahal hmm. Agra hmm. you know Agra was a huge place and it was always an urban center you know any memory would kind of suggest to you that it came up with the with the kind of ruling establishment you go to pre-colonial period there's a history that you know right from Mohenjo-Daro we had kind of urban, what we call a civilization, which again is a problematic word. There's a decline, you know, again, up uh, to those hap- things happen everywhere historically. Mm-hmm. But I think one should kind of recognize the centrality of urban centers if we have to reimagine what you were talking about, decolo- decolonizing our minds. Mm-hmm. One should not think only through religious kind of processes, but more importantly, are these spatial 
cultures or special regions and those special regions had their own specific regional dynamics regional politics regional languages was very very critical i think every region had their own language and those languages if you go to tamil nadu tamil culture is ancient culture and, and yes. it was not simply simply culture of people fighting with each other or or producing subsistence food is very mm-hmm. sophisticated literature classical yes. ancient literature right yes so you have sufi literature which kind of starts coming out in parid from 12th 13th century and that's very sophisticated literature i mean sanskrit also is a language right so mm-hmm. one needs to look at if you were to look at the history of sanskrit this was also a region localized it was everyone did not converse in sanskrit or every elite did not work through sanskrit there were other elites so yes. that's why urban centers would make us aware of these diversities of elite cultural processes through which certain regional cultures evolve whether mm-hmm. it is language or it is theater or it is Uh, traditions of critical thinking or it is religious rituals or it is institutional uh, kind of uh, frameworks through which life is organized so all these things are in some sense still open for discussion our problem is that our historians have written history of india right mm-hmm. so there's a kind of this logical problem when you think of this region as one yeah. national grand history right there is yeah. no one national grand history one needs to yes. then kind of look at the realities as they were right it's yes something. yes you know when i was reading your book i was actually quite surprised that you know earlier generations i mean you know during the colonial period we brought botan so completely into the idea of us being backward you know and uh, that itself was a great achievement of the colonists i think you know how yes. did they manage to do that like you know because it requires a whole populace to believe their truth right so uh, it made me think of that a lot so i think the most obvious thing was education the the kind of uh, elite they produced which became the ruling elite of india after 1947 we are in some sense part of that same kind yes. of social process yes. and i think that is where because the 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 new education system that macaulay introduced it is built into that that, that, that mm. you know you learn english and we are still talking to each other in english language yes. and the yes. history of india as a nation state i'm not anti english i think english is yeah. not required and now it's a different world yes in this world too we have to navigate very differently it's not like we should give up everything and go to a kind of locality and and begin to <laughs> you know invent or translate everything to locally <laughs> history has its own logic and we can't really yes. run away from right yeah. but at the same time just situating it and understanding it critically will give us you know decolonize our mind at some level and then mm-hmm. we can we can we can look at our opportunities and our, 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 our privileges as privileges not as 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 sources of our being superior race or superior people when compared to people who are living in the villages mm-hmm. so i think uh, that is i think it's it's very critically located in the macolian project of producing an english speaking middle class and english speaking middle class even when dodabai noruji if you look at the text which is available online mm-hmm. he is actually trying to criticize uh, the drain process and he is he is speaking a very kind of colonial language of yes. my lord honorably i wish to submit and stuff like that yeah. so, so i think that that is that is where the roots of this uh, what one would call as slavery or kind of uh, colonization lies so they were very successful in in changing the world and mm. the world changed in yes. their what one should say uh, image self image yes. because everyone wants to be part of the same new global world which is not very old it's just uh, in some sense uh, 300 200 years old but right now that kind of global capitalism is the normative Yes and all of us to be there I mean why not our children are also very mobile and they also want to achieve everything even when they when they when they have these you know theories in their mind so yeah. uh, I think these are these are realities I mean it's not like you know I'm now going to give up everything and going to go there but we mm-hmm. need to recognize that, yeah. that we are located historically and that what we have today is 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 a privilege that we have and in, along with this privilege also comes our own sense of inferiority as you said whatever yes. you might achieve you know if i am writing this book sitting in jnu it's much better than sitting in kolhapur but it's certainly not as good as sitting in princeton or harvard right <laughs> 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 we are also stuck 
yeah. so that's a global global structure of power which has yeah. isn't it <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Uh, okay, and you know, and also while I was reading it, I was thinking you know, when you mentioned that even the idea of the nation state with like fixed borders, it is so recent, you know, and we have to constantly remind ourselves of that. And you know, people keep yeah. getting stuck, uh, you know, being called outsiders precisely yeah, because yeah. of this, right? So yeah, that's also yeah. part of the whole thing. So you want to talk about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's again, see, uh, some level. Anything that we talk about today, we need to uh, situate in this context of uh, what one would call as modernity and the emergence of nation-state societies, mm. right? So that's our defining features, right? Your newspaper, Hindustan Times, right? It's also, again, there's a kind of nationalist paradigm within which journalism evolves in India. Yes. So whatever we have today, we take them as natural as things that have been around us forever but yes. everything has their history and that history is very recent mm-hmm. as 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 institutions as practices what we see even our kind of so-called traditions they are also very recent i mean the way yes. we get married for example and we somehow think of tradition having been there forever yes and that's why it is tradition yeah. which is empirically not the case i mean every generation uh, kind of reworks her tradition, right? So what we see today as as even a traditional wedding, uh, in most of North India, it's increasingly becoming a Punjabi wedding, right? Mm. So you have things like Sangeet, which were very specific to Punjabi wedding or certain kind of wedding rituals or something like Karva Chauth, which is seen as Hindu tradition. Mm. But this itself is kind of very closely tied to the way consumer culture in some sense, develops and comes into interpersonal relationships yes. or even something like Ganpati Puja as, as a kind of public festival. Yes. We know it was started by Pillar, right? Yes. So yes. there are specific kind of moments in history when certain practices acquire a kind of larger acceptability and we begin to see as things that are given. Mm. But they have their history. It's not like, but every generation has its traditions. It's not like, you know, uh, tradition is anything bad or, you know, it's always uh, conservative. That is not the case. I mean, every yes. culture has a notion of history and notion of tradition, which are not the same thing. Mm. Right? So we take things for granted for that particular moment. That becomes the way of, of, of being in a particular manner. But then there are also people who want to move away from it and they feel suffocated or they find it not acceptable. So they evolve their own tradition. Again, it's not something that, you know, everyone does it individually. I mean, that also yes. becomes cultural practice even you know civil marriage has a name now in the moment you have a name institutionalized and then it would also have a certain set of rituals which would be attached to civil marriage and (laughs) people will do that and that's how it becomes kind of you know a kind of social process and that's that's what sociologists would argue that you know we are all the time in some sense when we are living with others and that's the only way to live we are also living through rituals of some kind or the other so it's not like we always always working with reason. Reason itself is a ritual of some kind, you know. What do mm. we mean by reason? There's nothing called instrumental reason that yes. we can work with. All. We all human beings, we have emotions, we have sentiments, we have, you know, we, we see each other and we feel in a particular manner. So all that comes together, whether it is settlements or it is communities or it is caste groups or it is, you know, nation states. So all the time we are also simultaneously emotional. Right. Yes. Nationalism claims to be modern, but nationalism itself, in some sense, mobilizes a particular kind of sentiment. Yes. Yes. Which, yes. Is, which is which is beyond reason, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so you know, I also found this this chapter very interesting, where you talk about you know uh, gender and caste in the village. You know, you want to talk about that and how that is, you know, the changing equations in the village and 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 the impact of that. Yeah, yeah. You know, on these things. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, when we substantively think about, uh, 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 say, rural or village, we also have this uh, presumption that, you know, in urban areas, people live very differently. Rural areas, people live in a particular manner. Yes. We think of having joint family, caste system, right? While in urban areas, people have nuclear families. I was actually shocked when I went to do my fieldwork in late 1980s for my PhD. Uh, most of the people in villages lived in nuclear families. Uh, and except for like, you know, big landlords who had large holdings, yeah. they li- had a kind of larger, big houses. 
but um, half more than half of the villagers had very tiny places to live yeah. right if you get married i was working on debt dependencies and credit relations mm-hmm. most of the landless laborers became indebted at the time of getting married wow. one of the basic need was to put up your own small hut where you can live after marriage yes oh so uh, this nuclear joint is a complete myth and now we have empirical material which shows that that rural settlements have a large majority of rural settlements settlements have always had nuclear households right so functionally people are connected with each other but when it comes to having your own kitchen and are you having your own place to sleep so they're all nuclear households most of them not that that that, that value of joint families perhaps stronger uh, in some communities than in other communities but it is not rural urban right mm. so the point is that that the way of living has been very diverse across regions of the subcontinent yes so every region has its, has had its own rural settlement say go to say for example kerala Mm. Kerala has a very different kind of rural settlement i mean it, yes. except for some pockets of kerala like you know uh, what is that area called palgad most mm. of the places are what are called as contiguous settlements right so yes. one household and there is a small field where you have coconut garden you know plants or banana plants and then after half an acre and one acre you have the brother sister living and next sister is another kind of you know so there is no common settlement it's only yes. recently 20 years that you have these you know basadas and local markets that have come up and then you will identify this is the village and mm-hmm. that is the next village yeah otherwise uh, uh, hill villages are very small and they are they are one community village i mean the one village would be kind of you know 25 households because there are no houseable plots you know on hills you'll have mm-hmm. small houseable plots so settlements are also very small right yes so you did some field work in 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 madhubani Uh, district of bihar uh, there are villages with 30000 population right so really? there are like 10 villages and they've all become one settlement continuous mm-hmm. huge rural settlements and if you look at it from from sky you would see like these are cities big cities but actually they are rural settlements right in oh. the sense of the term so there are significant diversities uh, and these diversities are Uh, of of the shape of settlement but also mm-hmm. over a period of time the way people live together in terms of caste in terms of gender relations in terms of uh, you know uh, uh, neighborhoods that has also been changing quite significantly right the yes. moment you have pakka streets for example where all the roads are made pakka mm-hmm. so once that panchayat system comes in uh, housing patterns will change right yes And yes you have resources yes. everybody has a pakka house so there is an additional space villages have expanded likewise caste relations also have changed lots of uh, uh, the big people of the village have left the village they are not there yes. any longer yes so also because of uh, commercialization of agriculture green revolution mechanization relations have become very instrumental you know? people mm. who are working on land they also see themselves as 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 small businessmen entrepreneurs there is attachment to land there is there is lot that is but it varies from region to region the manner in which the rural settlements are uh, in some sense integrated with the local urban life that also varies significantly from region to region villages of punjab and haryana are very different even today from villages of bihar and 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 chatisgarh so there are also other histories that that make yeah. these rural settlements yeah so and Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. I was also thinking of you know the histories of migration and all that you were Precisely, using to yeah. you know uh, the from Bihar to Punjab and you know yeah, all yeah. these things the the seasonal migrations, which yes, I think yes. Chennai Tumbe has written a lot about that you know about migrations yeah, yeah. within yeah, India. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, that is also a big factor now, right? In in the way our uh, yes, but the again the patterns of yeah. Yeah. yeah so the patterns of migration significantly vary from region to region mm. so the malayalis will go to gulf yes punjabis will go to canada yes biharis will come to delhi and other urban centers where you have this uh, construction activity going on yeah. and uh, from within bihar also the patterns of migration would vary depending on who you are mm. yeah if you happen to be a kind of landed uh, so called privileged caste your migration patterns are likely to be very different you come to delhi and study in ramjas college and become an is officer yes so so the biharis are now highest in in i think upsc if you look at the the manner because there are very few local opportunities for the yes. elite of bihar 
the middle yes. classes of Bihar. So very few opportunities available within the state. Bihar is one of the least urbanized pockets of India. So they come to Delhi. They come wherever they can. There are, there are people who are coming here to sell vegetables. There are people who are coming here to, to do construction work. But there are also people who are coming here to become journalists and professors. Right? Yes, yes. Europe, right? Yes. All kinds of flows, migration flows are much larger. Likewise, you know, the, the obviously regional patterns. Historically, yes. Punjabis began to migrate because they joined the colonial uh, army and then they were taken out to fight uh, their wars. Yes. They stayed back and that becomes a kind of cultural pattern. And these are all rural to, to west migrations. Yes. Most of the migrations that have happened out of Punjab are from rural areas of Punjab, not from yes. urban areas of Punjab. So yes. likewise, Hirat is another center where migration, a region which are, from where migrations have, have kind of again started during the colonial period to, to, to Africa and then from there to, to the West. Again, very interesting kind of patterns. Not everywhere. In neighboring uh, Karnataka does not have as much out-migration as Kerala has. Yes. Again, post-1990s, post you have these high-tech migrations. Now, most of the soft tech the population in the US, many of them are Indians. I mean, yes. They are, they are, they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and also you, what I found really interesting, of course, it's not, uh, you know, like it's not particular to this book, but you mentioned it, saying that how, you know, Punjabi migration to uh, North America and Canada and is different from how the Kerala uh, migration to um, the Gulf states is, because that's more circular. You know, after yeah. exactly like how the Biharis go back, yeah. the Bihari yeah. laborer goes back to his home state, these people come yeah. back to Kerala. Whereas the yeah. Punjabi migration now more and more is like forever. One way. You know, it's the yeah, yeah. One way. So talk about that. That's also really fascinating, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's how historically patterns have evolved. I mean, there's no inherent reason for that. Because as I said, Punjabis migrated to the West and West provided them with citizenship opportunities. Mm-hmm. That you could become natives, yes, and they began to settle down there. While Malayalis, because they 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 respond to the to the opportunities that are opened up in Gulf for various historical reasons. I think Kerala has had connections with Gulf yes. for a very long time. There yes. were Arab traders coming here even in the sixth fifth sixth century. So yes. there was like some kind of connection where once they started going, but there are no opportunities of of settling there. Yes. So there are there are Malayali investment, there are Malayali real estate, and now Dubai is emerging as a different kind of uh, global hub where lots of Indians have houses, mm-hmm. but they would not have the entitlements of being a citizen. That also yes. might change. Like we don't really know. But another thing is that migration also brings a new kind of cultural uh, kind of practice and and prosperity. So there is a possibility that one set of migrations would lead to other set of migrations. My own gut feeling is that there's a lot of out-migration happening from Kerala now of health work, healthcare workers mm. to the Western countries. And that is not circular. Mm. So lots of Malayali nurses are, for example, going to Germany yes. or even to US, right? And these yeah. nurses would not come back. So once they are in Germany, they get local citizenship. Then they, the families also would follow them. So the yes. patterns might change, right? Yeah. So likewise, Punjabis, again, all migrations happen through networks. So yes. because Punjabis migrated earlier to Canada and, and, and to, to Britain, um, now to Australia, so because they have some resources. If you're a Punjabi, you're going there, mostly Sikhs, you would find some Gurudwara somewhere where you can go and stay and some uncle, some Masi, some relative from where you, you, you would find some kind of you know security. And that's how it becomes way of 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 uh, reworking your livelihood patterns. These are not simply fashionable migration. These are also also kind of you know desperate migrations where you don't yes. have apartment and the kind of aspirations you have for yourself. You don't find it getting fulfilled living here. So they go wherever it is possible. Mm. So these networks that, you know, specific communities have, and I think you've alluded to it in your book also, that, you know, the Dalits haven't had that so much. So that's also one of the factors that keeps them back, you know. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Or different communities have different kind of networks. So in, from for example, from, from Bihar, we noticed uh, when Muslims migrate out, they go to areas where there are already Muslims living. Like they would not come to Delhi, they'll go to Bombay because there are textile industries or specific kind of industries where lots of Muslims are there. So yeah. they have their team networks and invariably 
the destinations of migrations are shaped by the origins, even in terms of economic hierarchies. Yes. So okay. Dalits, because their networks would be in low end professions at the site of destination, mm -hmm. that's where their migrations will circulate. Right? Okay. All these people who are selling vegetables in Narkipuram and other parts of Delhi, they would be from middling castes rather than from uh, Dalit communities, right? So they'll have resources at home. They would be, you know, they have some money in their pocket to invest and they can also kind of buy some, you know, rent some area where they can, they can sell their fruits and vegetables and get into that network. And that itself would have its own political economy and, and some kind of kinship system. So all these are, these are very diverse. And the moment you explore, you realize that, you know, we only have notions, but the, the, the reality is that we also need to kind of look at the nuance of, of different kinds of migrations. And this also becomes very important for policy. Right? Yes. So when you have a kind of general stereotypical notions of these processes, for example, when I talk about agriculture or indebtedness, um, every villager is not a farmer. Yes. And every farmer is not of similar kind. So when, mm -hmm. when we have a notion of, you know, helping the poor farmers and then you think that you are helping the villagers, that may be only 20% of the rural uh, households, mm -hmm. people who actually do farming. So the 80% yeah. we don't even think about. What is their source of livelihood? How are they managing in, 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 in case of, say, there is earthquake or flood? So we need to have this differentiated view of the rural. Mm. And that is partly the reason why I'm raising all these questions, which do not appear like questions of rural, but we need to kind of take them on board. Mm. And also, you know, when you mentioned that all farmers are not even rural, they're, they're not, uh, some of them yeah. are, you know, pa only partly rural or, you know, they live now in the cities and, you know, maybe commute to the village, yeah. you know, yeah. that's, that's also there. And, and whereas, and their households are in cities, their children are, yeah. you know, aspire to a, the usual urban middle class uh, dream. So, so the two sets of cultivators, landowners, traditional landowners who are moving out of village and out of agriculture. One is the top end, the other one is the lower end. So I think dynamics of top end and lower end are very different. Yes. So the lower end obviously has, has they can't survive just, you know, if you have half an acre of land or two acres of land. So you will have to diversify. Yes. And in order to diversify, you will invariably have to go to the city for employment, right? So... You don't want to sell off your land because city cannot give you, you know, it can't accommodate you as 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 a person, as mm. a citizen, a family. Mm. So mm. it can only give you space where you can become a security guard and come and work here for six months. Then you can go away for a while and then so your family stays back. So yes. that process is very different from say what you know I, the word I've used provincial property class. The rich farmers yes. of 1980s and 90s they are also ex experiencing that you know agriculture is not which will take you very far. And their children are educated. Mm -hmm. They are they are aspirational like urban elite or urban middle classes. They are also yes. very well connected because democracy gave them opportunities of getting into political process. And then yes. politics also brings with it resources, networks mm -hmm. through which you can get a say, gas station or license of, of some other kind, which would take you to city. Or yes. Child has been a lawyer and you know, he is, or she is anyway living in the city. So there are all kinds of dynamics that are, that are kind of. So we need to recognize that, that rural has always been a fluid place and it continues to be fluid. Yeah. But at the same time, it is in, in case of India, it is not, it's not dying. It's not even shrinking. Mm. only in the relative sense of the term in absolute sense of the term rural is not even shrinking the absolute size of the rural is also expanding yes yes and also how you know you've mentioned that uh, for many people you know uh, rural their rural holdings are a, uh, which we saw during the pandemic are a, a are a place of safety for them in times of crisis right and you know you want to talk about that because that's also a big, uh, I mean, sentiment and emotion is tied up with uh, with the rural yeah. for many of us still, you know, yeah. even if it's only in the imagination. Yeah, I mean, particularly for the very poor and middling, uh, those who are mobile, mm -hmm. they have some land. For example, uh, when rural youth from even the so-called dominant castes who are educated and who are not required in the village because land holding is only five acres or seven acres, you already have two brothers working there. Mm. Not that you are going to live upon land, but you are you are you are not aspire to live in the village, or 
land doesn't need you. You want to work outside and you can add some income. But the kind of employment that's available in corporate sector, earlier there was a kind of state sector which they could get into through political networks, I was saying. So all those opportunities have now nearly kind of uh, withered away. Mm-hmm. So what do you do? You come to the city, you get into some of these informal sector jobs, you become a driver, or even if you are in a contractual employment, your lifestyle is poorer than the lifestyle of your family in the village. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Village, you have some land, you are dominant caste, you have a big house or not very small house. Here you are living in a small kind of you know room in a kind of semi-urban or semi-slum kind of uh, setting. Mm. And you're just be they trying to be there struggling. Yes. But at the same time, you also want your children to grow up in the city. So you want them to go to urban school. So you're kind of sacrificing and working hard for them. Yes. So you see many of those people. So these are these are processes of change. And I think this is something that that is that is very tough life. But at the same time, you know, people tend to kind of want to continue to have one lag in the village because that's where security is, as you said. Even these migrant workers, when we saw during pandemic, they were going back. Yes. And agriculture is a sponge, as, as Barbara Harris-White uses this term, that it can, if there is nothing else, you can always come back home. There is food to eat. Yes. There may not be cinema, there may not be school for your child, <laughs> but they would have at least food to eat and, and yeah. you can not live peacefully, you can definitely die peacefully in the village. <laughs> going forward like maybe in another 20 years what is i won't say typical because we can't say that but uh, an indian village say in north india you know what is it going to be like do you think because uh, you also mentioned how many villages are being subsumed into cities you know we see that like where i live this used to be a village it's been taken in you know by the city so you know if you can talk about all those things so this process is going to go on uh, but as 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 we see, look at the data, available data, unfortunately, we don't have the latest census, 2021. Uh, but the, the point is that uh, we think in linear terms. Mm. We think that, you know, there is a process of urbanization and there's inevitability of urbanization. Yes, yes. I think what happened during pandemic uh, is something very interesting and it would have very interesting spatial consequences. So the manner in which the new media has integrated all kinds of settlements, there is a tendency for the smaller level settlements to persist for much longer. Or even there might be a reverse trend. I Mm. was in uh, uh, North Carolina in in April, Mm. and this was a small uh, uh, university town, Winston-Salem, where I was a visiting professor. Mm. And I was being told that now lots of people are shifting to that small town from New York because they can work from home by living in Winston-Salem as well, or even yes. in a smaller town than that, right? Yes. Living yes. in New York requires you at least have $10,000, and there yes. you can survive with $3,000, right? Yes. So those kinds of processes with the kind of, you know, we, we have industrial technology that brings the city, but we are now living in a new kind of technological age, which yes. might produce different kind of settlement patterns. Mm. So I think uh, one of the message that book tries to give is to not to think in this linear fashion. This is just a 200 years experience of Western Europe. Yes. Not going to repeat itself anywhere else because we are not, we don't have Australia's and America's to colonize. Mm-hmm. The population is not going to go anywhere. Some of yes. us will go to Canada and Australia and to <laughs> kind of the Gulf countries. But yeah. That is not going to reduce our numbers. They will still keep rising. As yeah. long as our birth rates begin to come down, which would also happen, keep growing. Another 20 years, perhaps population will begin to decline even in India, right? That's, that's yeah. possible. It's Young possible. people don't want to get married and they want to have children. So there could be other, you know, we don't know what, what global warming will do to our fertility patterns and stuff like that. Possibilities exist. So the idea is not to think linear in a linear way, in a manner that, 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 that kind of predestines us to a future. So mm. the future is uncertain and it's going to be going to be uncertain in every sense and special processes are part of that uncertainty. Mm. And you know, when I was reading it, like you said, these people going from New York to North Carolina, I was thinking oh, exactly of that, like, you know, some sections of the middle class who, you know, who have the internet and who have jobs which allow them to remotely work. I'm seeing many people go to... Where, yeah. yeah. 
settling in smaller places in villages yeah, even. Yeah, so, yeah. so it's a possibility that that yeah, be a complete. Lots of people are buying buying land in Bhopal in you know yeah. places in Maharashtra which are completely rural. Yeah. So if you get two acres of land, you also have a small plot where you can grow your vegetables and you eat organic food and you have enough wealth to commute and travel. (laughs) Which like two generations ago, maybe, you know, people would have thought it's madness. Yeah. 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 So so on that note, you know, we'll end. Though I could keep talking to you, it's really an interesting book. For the listeners, you know, go out and get the Indian Village Rural Lives in the 21st Century. It's absolute by Surinder S. Jodhka. It's absolutely an it's a great read it's very interesting I've read the whole thing and I found it um, very illuminating you know and uh, it kind of changed it made me question many of the uh, you know the givens that we just take as truths so thank you so much for talking to me about all that thank you very much Manjula bye Stay updated on this podcast. Follow us at HD Smartcast on all the major social media platforms. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to www.hdsmartcast.com. Smartcast.com.